0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids experience the thrill of transformative encounter we'll bring more wonder to your day listen to constant wonder wherever you get your podcasts
1: before we kick off the show if you're a fan of history hack please do what you can to support the show we completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets times are hard But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and, importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash historyhack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash historyhack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I have yet another deeply, deeply impressive guest with me today. I'm joined by an Olympian. Yes, you heard me right. I'm joined by an Olympian, Richard Cohen. However, he's not just an Olympian. He's also a prolific writer. He's produced books such as How to Write like Tolstoy, Chasing the Sun, and A History of All Things Swordfighting. Um, his new book is absolutely fascinating, though. Um, we don't like to use the word historiography on History Hack because everybody goes, uh, it's a sort of fancy word and what does it even mean? Um, but essentially, we're talking about, within the term historiography, the history of history. And Richard has written about the history of historians. So not perhaps quite what we think of when we think of historiography, but actually something perhaps a little bit more kind of key and fundamental in terms of our understanding. This is going to be a heck of a chat. Richard, great to talk to you. Welcome to History Hack. How are you doing?
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. And it's great to be on the show. And you're right. um, I tried not to mention the word historiography at all in the book, I think I failed a couple of times when I more or less had to put it in, but that was that was my um, strong prejudice.
1: Yeah, it is it is a taboo word um, for those who are trying to sort of help in terms of making history accessible. Uh, and I, I think there's just something about, perhaps it sounds a bit too much like geography. Perhaps it's a historian prejudice and we just don't like geography enough. And so you sound like you're fusing the two and, and we just run away screaming from that. Um, Anyhow, let's, let's start diving into this. This is a can of worms, I hope you don't mind me saying. Uh, it's a monumental task to try and unpick it all. What on earth made you want to do it? Well, a can of worms is the best starting
2: point if you want to catch some big fish. Um, and I suppose the starting point came for me when I went to my main school when I was 13 and started studying medieval history, and which is quite a stretch. And the, the, the scholarship paper, was on the dissolution of the monasteries in 1536 and beyond. And my school's all-boys all school um, set in the countryside outside Bath in Somerset. And it was run by Benedictine monks. And the main uh, author of books on the dissolution of the monasteries then was a man called David Knowles. And his view on the monasteries were they had it coming to them. They, they were dissolute and didn't have much self in, self-control self and discipline and so on. Um, but I learned that David Knowles has actually domed David Knowles, as they call Benedictines, and he had been a monk at Downside, my school, and had been expelled for trying to ferment a rebellion in the Abbey, which is extraordinary. And I got hold of his unpublished autobiography. And what is clear um, is that He used his own beliefs and his feelings that the monks of his time were very ungodly and weren't following the proper rule, really to fuel the same prejudices which he took to his history books. Now, I hadn't read the autobiography when I was a teenager, obviously, but in my kind of dim teenage mind, I thought, huh, this guy seems to have an agenda. And that kind of stuck with me, and I realised that the people who tell us about our past often have agendas and they vary widely. And I thought, you know, there's that famous saying by E.H. Carr, kind of fifties and sixties, British historian, um, if you're interested in history, I was first ask about the historian. And that's what I wanted to do. And the book that I wanted to read didn't exist. So I thought, damn it, I have to write it.
1: Absolutely, I love that philosophy. Uh, boy, we could go down so many rabbit holes with that straight away in terms of individual prejudices and can you divorce yourself from your own prejudices and so on. Um, we, we might save that for a little bit later before we uh, kind of go ultra philosophical on our listeners. But I'm going to start by putting you on the spot. Who is the father of history as a discipline? Well, it, it's a great
2: phrase, And everyone takes it to be, and I think properly takes it to be, Herodotus, who was born around 485, people say, died, that's BC, he died in 420 BC. Um, So his um, coffee drinking mates, as it were, were Plato, Sophocles, Aeschylus, that gang. Um, But at the time that he was traveling for the book, which is probably his best, is best known as the histories so it translates from the greek as um, the researches Um, um, history wasn't really a concept people then didn't have you know a sense of a narrative so his his investigations marked a new consciousness you know abstract reasoning connecting with the past in a new way and um i think that certain certain discoveries are necessary if a society is going to grow. And the sense of the past is one of them. But although um, Cicero called him father of history, that's how the tag began, and Plutarch, coming slightly later, said, yeah, but he makes up so many things. He's a father of lies as well. So he had these two um, epithets, father of history and father of lies. But he's a wonderful historian, and he does make a whole lot of things up. But um, whisper it, it's one of the things that makes him so readable.
1: This is a good point. But straight away, you touched on something there, which is Plutarch turning around and making a critique of the, the notion of what it means to be a historian. It's not just a case of telling a story. It's a case of being able to determine viable truths um, within that story, which leads us straight on to The Romans and their version because there's a certain irony here that a lot of Roman writers are kind of concerned about you know patronage and there are their own agendas uh, when it comes to their writing and we quite often have you know ancient scholars on on this show kind of talking about how you know person x says a certain thing but we know that's a load of rubbish because actually the person that is bankrolling them has an agenda against whoever this roman writer I- is talking about so when it comes to the ancient romans how useful i guess are their works in the sense that you know if you take them at face value then you have to accept that they can't be taken at face value um, and and if you're going to do that and, and take it as is written you're going to be led up the garden path. How much of a problem is that? I mean, is it too much to say that they're useless? It is too much to say. Uh, you know,
2: some people say that all the Roman historians were doing was trying to make themselves look wonderful. Um, but then that's what all historians are trying to do, um, prove that they know what their predecessors didn't. Um, but the motives of the, the, the ancient Roman historians really vary a lot. Polybius, for instance, who was Greek, then wrote for the Romans, wanted to educate his, his fellow Greeks in the New World Order um, to chart Rome's rise to power. But to that extent, he was a real educator. Um, Sallust, who was called um, Ian Fleming, pretending he was Graham Greene, um, genuinely wanted to denounce corruption. Um, Livy, um, who's more read than either of them, um, his agenda was to extol how great Rome was. And everything he wrote was focused on doing that. Um, Tacitus too, um, the other great, great historian, was intent to provide moral lessons for his readers. Caesar, I think, was intent on just writing a better CV for himself for when he got even greater power. So that's quite a range of different motives. Um, And, you know, if one understands where they were coming from. And they were all pretty privileged people who held kind of, as it were, ministerial positions um, in Greek, in Roman society at that time. Um, so they were um, a privileged class writing in leisure hours. Um, one's got to sift what we read of their writings with what, they, what we know of their situation. And um, a lot of their writings give us wonderful pictures in the society of our, of their time. So, no, they're absolutely not useless. They're tremendous to read. And I had, for the book, to reread uh, Caesar's accounts of his wars, which, when a schoolboy I'd curse as I'd try to work out what on earth he was getting at. But in English translations, they still read wonderfully excitingly. They're full of battles and skirmishes and wrong decisions, acts of courage and cowardice, they're adventure stories. Um, but for the most part, um, he, keeps, he writes about himself in the third person. They are wonderfully true accounts, ones which we um, now can say are accurate. Although, you know, when one tries to say, well, normally you try to put one account against another, can we do that with the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans? Um, um, somebody said a few years ago, that what's left to us in terms of the books that survive from either societies is about the equivalent of a badly bombed out library. You know, we have so little that actually has has come through to us. And very often, you know, I think it's um, Tullus who we only know about his writings because they were found used as a cork in in a a bottle of wine. Tacitus' writings came down in one version, um, both the Annals and uh, Agricola. So more by luck than judge, judgment, we've got these wonderful writers, but useless they are not.
1: Absolutely, because you've tapped on a point that what within kind of historical circles is, is termed reading against the grain. Which is this idea that you don't just take things at face value, and, and this is something this might be a point at which to start sort of delving into the historian's craft, because part of it, it is important to make our listeners aware that just because a historian is a historian and they say something doesn't necessarily actually mean that they know what they're talking about. and one area that is important here is specialism um, with certain individuals, not just because you're a historian of a particular period, for example, in my case, Napoleonic Wars, doesn't mean I can sit here and wax lyrical about Roman history because I'm a dunt when it comes to Roman history. Um, Is there any sense of at what point people start to make judgments on whether or not somebody is qualified to talk about what they're talking about? And I'm thinking particularly about what you were saying about Plutarch, um, describing Herodotus as father of lies. Do we have a, a kind of sense of a point at which people are sort of turning to historians uh, and previous works and going, hmm, yeah, but that's not right, is it?
2: Well, you use the word historian lightly. Um, this is true. As if we, you know, it's a currency which we can bite and say, no, that's the genuine thing. I mean, first of all, hist- history means two things it means the past, but it also means. accounts of the past generally in writing but you know you've got uh, narrative paintings and all other forms um, that tell us about what the past was like so it means that history in that sense is the past coming through a filter to us and um, so one's got to be wary about which meaning of history is, is appropriate and the same is true of historian i mean historians So called, didn't think of themselves as historians. The profession, in as much as it was ever a profession, really started uh, in the last quarter, I'd say, of the 19th century, when you had this amazing German uh, professor of history, as he became to be, Leopold von Renke. And he had stumbled upon a whole lot of ambassadors' reports, uh, reporting to um, the state of Venice. Um, which, um, because of Venice's uh, parlous plight at that time in the history of Italy, um, hadn't been used or or known about. So he had this Aladdin's cave of amazing raw material and really made his reputation then using them for the books he was going to write. Um, But that um, really made him think, well, science is in the ascendant in Germany, as indeed most universities throughout Europe, um, and in the States. And scientists are getting good jobs in universities. And I want historians to be as esteemed and have a career structure and be decently paid and thought of. So he thought, well, first of all, um, we'll say that history is a science, not an art. Then we'll say it's a discipline, good word, discipline, good Germanic word too. And we'll say that it's crucial that you go to original sources, that you cite evidence. And he put forward a number of other things um, that he felt that if you were going to be writing history, um, you had to have these disciplines in mind. And it was very successful. One could argue to an extent, rightly so, because um, professorships in history spouted up everywhere. Um, People got jobs as professional historians um, and it changed the way history was taught. In fact, the whole way in which people studied for doctorates came from Von from Ranka. Um, so he was really important, but I think he was also dangerously wrong in certain ways in that, although, if you like, his prejudice or his agenda was to establish history as a decent subject uh, to spend one's life in, um, he, I wouldn't say founded, but certainly perpetuated the idea that. It's the academy. It's professional historians who are the people who can talk about what the past was like. And one of the things that I try to do in my book is to say, well, at one level, we're all historians. If you say, you know, you'll never guess what happened to me yesterday. I was walking along in the street, this beautiful woman came up to me and said, "Oh, I've heard your podcast. It's wonderful. I've fallen in love with you." And you'll be telling quite rightly so you'd be telling a narrative and it'd be up to your listeners to decide whether this was real history or false facts. Um, But I wanted to say that, you know, the writers of the Bible are an important source of our knowledge of the past. The dramatists, Shakespeare, for instance, I've got a a chapter on Shakespeare because he's given us our ideas about Tudor monarchs and about leading um, ancient Roman figures, Antony, Cleopatra and Julius Caesar which have really formed our idea of how, what those people were like. I mean, famously, Richard III. And I've got another chapter on historical novelists because, again, um, they have formed many people's ideas of whole ranges of what history has been. So um, I won't say, I mean, there's some wonderful historians, some wonderful living historians, but there are also historians who are marked by pedantry and bowing to their rivals and peers saying, look how many footnotes I've put in um, and look how many books I've read. And that can really kill off history. Um, So i try to cast my net, I think fairly, but widely to take in any kind of person, people who wouldn't necessarily ever have called themselves historians, um, who really have influenced our ideas of, of what the past has been.
1: So many things to follow up on there. Um, Firstly, I couldn't help but chuckle at this idea that um, you could put historians on an equal footing to scientists. Um, And I say this as somebody who has tried very hard to make it as a professional historian, but on no level would I put myself on a par with somebody who's solving climate change or curing cancer or or any of these genuinely earth changing um, and life changing achievements. But is history a science? Oh, no, it's really not. Um, History, I believe, had a muse, did it not, right back in the library of Alexandria, which in itself means that it has to be an art. Well, you know, one puts
2: labels on things. Science itself was a word that only came in in the 19th century to be used over that whole range of inquiries, which we now put under the heading science. Um, The word historian didn't make it into English dictionaries until that century. So, you know, these are pretty relatively recent labels anyway. And the people who wrote about the past didn't say, oh, I am a historian. Um, You know, so one's got to be careful. Um, There are what we might call scientific elements to writing history, and there are artistic elements. We don't have to say whether it's a science or an art, unless you have got a particular failure of uh, loving for, for pigeonholing things.
1: This is very true. Um, and just to really mess with people's heads, there are some historians like myself who try and fuse the two. So we take a data analytical approach, a sciencey approach, to studying the past. Um, through, I mean, it's known as fusing the qualitative and the quantitative methods of history fancy terminology for basically using any information you can get your hands on, including a shed load of data and seeing what it tells you. Um, so I, I like these, these points that you're making. You gave us some lovely little teasers that I want to start to dig into though. Um, one of which was the was... teaser. <laughs> <laughs> <One of> which... <laughs>
2: You've got a pedant on your program. I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever
1: been heckled by a guest before. <laughs> this is a new experience quick let's let's move it on before the anarchy um, anarchy reigns. Uh, otherwise I'll get fired by my boss. Um, one of the chapters that you you look at is talking about the creation of the Bible. Where do you even start with analyzing that because the this is probably going to make me unpopular with some of a, a Christian disposition, but the Bible is in itself a, a translation and it's a selection of previous materials. It was never just kind of flatly presented at one moment in time as here is the definitive article. So, and there's this, this whole thing about, you know, the redacted um, text, the, the 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 gospels that never made it into the, the current version. So, Where do you start with unpicking all of that, especially when you think about a lot of what I've said is specifically New Testament, never mind the Old Testament?
2: Well, you start with a stiff
1: drink. Then you have a second. Um, Sounds like you'd fit in down the pub on History Hack. (laughs) Um, What what
2: I started with was going to people who really knew the subject. Um, I said I was brought up by Benedict in months. Catholics get teased for knowing the New Testament and being really pig ignorant about the Old Testament. Um, I went to, among others, um, John Barton, who's Emeritus Professor of Theology at um, um, Oxford University. Um, He kind of marked my card. And then um, in terms of unravelling just who wrote um, the main historical sections in the Old Testament, There's a wonderful man, he's still alive, he's 76 now, called Richard Friedman, who wrote a book called Who Wrote the Bible, which was published in uh, 1987, and then there's a a recent revising of it, published in 1997. So, well, that's over 20 years ago, so maybe he'll revise it it again. But it's like a mystery um, or detective story um, over who the writers of the old testament were and how they interacted and who put it all together and so on and i was convinced not only by friedman's accounts and people who've commented on his writings but then going on to the new testament and so on that the bible both old and new is, uh, is a work of propaganda and it's not history per se and it includes wonderful important Aspects about the past, and as a cultural artifact, um, it's obviously and the most influential book that's ever been published. Um, Although you might say that uh, the Quran and the Talmud uh, come in along with it, but all three are works of propaganda. Um, That, depending on your point of view, you may say they're propagating important truths. But they're not history in the way that we should understand that word um, to be. Um, as I say, I'm I very much rested on guidance of some wonderful academic historians.
1: Let's let's keep kind of going through some of these teasers that you gave us. Then um, I'm going to be honest; I'm certainly guilty of this next one: the sort of Western-centric perspective, that habit. Uh, and it goes even down to a national level doesn't it sort of the anglo-centric perspective we have this habit of viewing things through lenses that we are most familiar with whether that be culturally nationally whatever it might be um but you have looked at the other side haven't you in terms of things like the islamic view of history give us a a little bit of a, a flavor of That the importance of that that difference of perspective and where it leads.
0: In a sudden flash it all comes clear. It's a Eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, what I wanted to do was write about accounts of the past, which have influenced our understanding of the past. The one kind of touchstone criterion was people who really influenced us. And the truth is, whether we like it or not, that the people who have are mainly from Western Europe. Um, and North America. Um, but, you know, if I looked at um, writings about Africa, um, if they weren't written by um, Western Europeans, this re- African historiography didn't really become organized at the academic level until halfway through the last century. Um, books on South America by people who were actually from South America nothing before 1993 of real influence. Um, China, well, people say, ah, the father of Chinese history is Sima Ma Kwan, um, who was born in 145 BC. Um, and I'm sure he has influenced um, uh, Chinese historians, though um, more recent Chinese historians have said 2,000 years of Chinese history was totally made up. So I found that it wasn't just my personal Prejudices or limitations that made me um, limit uh, what I covered to mainly Western Europe and, and, and North America. Um, although um, I felt that I could get into um, Islamic history quite a bit, and there's a chapter on on Islamic history and Muhammad and the importance of the Quran to um, our understanding of the past. Um, but I take Al-Tabiri, who was born in 838 AD, and even greater historian called Ib Khaldun, um, who was a 14th-century historian. Um, and I go into them in detail because we know quite a lot about their lives and what they were like. Um, uh, and it may not be strictly strictly le- relevant to um, your listeners that Tabari didn't have a grey hair on into his 80s. Um, and kept all his hair and his beard until then. Um, but it gives you this uh, visual sense of this extraordinary person um, who, uh, with people at his feet, it, um, he would talk at such a speed that his pupils couldn't, couldn't write down quickly enough what he was saying. Um, but what I learned was that Islamic history began as an oral tradition and people who wrote things down were really thought of as weaklings um, and weren't respected. At One time historians were thought to be beneath prostitutes in the layer of who won respect or failed to get any. Um, And then when uh, people did write things down, um, it was having respect for your ancestors. And then along came Muhammad, half came the Quran, and um, believers in Islam said, well, that's the only thing you need. All you need to read is the Quran and learned commentary on the Quran. And if you're a historian, it's quite clear what your job is. You're got, you've got to refer to the learned scholar before him, and then the learned scholar before him, and then the learned scholar before him, with the result that most Islamic history is very, very repetitive. And um, we know from the most radical wing of Islam that you go against that way of doing things at your peril. And so although over the centuries there have been some wonderfully lively um, Islamic writers, now particularly, history is being closed down in those countries. And what you get is everybody towing the party the party religious line. And I was sad to write uh, about Islamic history um, for that reason, but it seemed a terrible example of what, in many ways, is true of um, countries that were heavily Christian. You had to toe the line in terms of what uh, the church, whether it was the Vatican or um other denominations, said was what you must do. You had to write about history with a God in his heaven. Um, So I'm not simply um, criticizing the limitations of Islamic history, um, but it was an example of what really narrowed thinking can lead to.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
1: I'm still reeling ever so slightly from the revelation about that guy who didn't lose any hair and didn't turn gray, even into his eighties, um, which I'd love to know his secret is, is all I'll say. Um, but I'm going to stay with what you were sort of starting to, to talk about there, which is sort of the the medieval period and the influence particularly of religion on um, the, that kind of perception that we have of sort of monks scrolling away in, in chronicles and so on. And, um, Because as you say, there is that religious agenda and sort of if somebody isn't of um, your particular branch or of Christianity, then they're sort of barbaric and um, a whole host of other insults can sort of ensue. So how much does that prejudice kind of influence the way in which we look at the histories that are written during that period?
2: Well, very much so. I mean, the writing of history particularly by religious orders um, is the only history that some secular historians um, of note um, from um, the fourth century through to the end of the middle ages, wherever you put that to be, but certainly, you know, running into the Renaissance, um, you've got um, some wonderful historians during that time, but they were generally religious professionals. I um, in France, you had um, Gregory of Tours, who was a bishop And he was a sixth century figure, died in 594. Um, uh, He used to be described uh, by John Bowers, a wonderful now dead historian, as trollop with bloodshed. Um, There was this bishop writing about um, fornicators, treachers, murderers, um, really the kind of super gossip of his time, but he had. a regard for sources but by and large he was a bishop and um, he wrote all kinds of religious treatises as well and so it was the telling of the past constricted by what he what he had to have as his religious shell as it were and you go on through to take um a hugely influential um English historian the venerable Bede uh who wrote um, um, a history of the um, history of the English-speaking people, um, and he he died in seven thirty-five. Um, well, read his accounts, and they're very lively. But it's miracles, miracles all the way. And you think, well, here's this person who really seems to um, sift his sources and pay regard to what the evidence he can glean, but in the end. Um, everything is subject to the limited Christian beliefs of his time. And you can go on through the years, and until you reach really Voltaire in France and Edward Gibbon with um, his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, um, maybe the most famous work of history one can think of outside the Bible, where they um, went out of their way to say, well, actually folks, I want to use my individual judgment, and I'm not going to take the church as being the ruling arbiter of what has happened. And in fact, chapters 15 and 16, I think it is, in Gibbon's multi-volume book, um, are precisely about how the Christian church brought down the Roman Empire um, by introducing certain um, Christian beliefs. But both those men, Voltaire and Gibbon, were determined that if you're going to write about history, you could write what you liked, and you didn't have some um, priestly censor telling you what was right and wrong or admissible or not. Now, in reply, um, church historians massed their armies, and by the 19th century, you've got a, um, a military force of Christian apologists shaping the history they felt people should believe in. So it's been a great battle. And you could argue that it's not until the 20th century that um, certainly Western European historians felt that they were free um, not to have to write according to a particular apology, um, communism or Christianity or whatever, Um, but it's a fierce fight and was for several centuries.
1: Wow. Um, I want to talk Shakespeare as well, just to really kind of keep the, the heavy punches going on this. Um, there's a there's a divide amongst the people who run History Hack between the sort of villain of epic proportions when it comes to history versus, well, it's OK because his writings when it comes to plays and so on are, are brilliant. Um, is he a villain of epic proportions? I guess Richard III would have kind of thought so if he was... Able to comment from beyond the grave. I think it's a nice idea that you
2: can describe Shakespeare um, relevantly or truthfully as a villain um, rather than the wonderful creator of fantastic villains. One thing I think I would say is, you know, you say, people, or I say people have got an agenda, people are prejudiced. Well, there are some wonderful works of history. Maybe most works of history are prejudiced accounts. Um, I remember interviewing. Um, the now dead, wonderful historian, Eric Hobsbawm. And I said, can you ever um, be an objective historian? And he just sat back in his chair in his 90s and laughed and said, no, of course not. But I try to obey the rules. Now you can talk about what the rules might be, and you can talk about whether Shakespeare obeyed rules. And one knows that, um, you know, Shakespeare made a lot of things up because he was um, writing Propaganda, you know. um, Now, whether you say he wrote 37, 38, 39 plays, um, more than half of them are rooted in history, not necessarily called histories, that's what they are. Um, But, you know, Wars of the Roses, 1399, 1487, long period. Well, they weren't an unceasing period of bloody confrontation, which is what Shakespeare makes them. You know, um, I think in all the history plays, The only one shown to be an admirable ruler, um, ironically, is Henry VIII. Um, Henry VI um, is a a trilogy about patriotic feeling or attempting to stir that up. Um, He had absolute agendas, uh, which is one of the reasons why um, his portrait of Richard III being an awful child killer and all the rest um, Was the most popular play in his time, outselling all the others, and is still um, one of his most popular plays. Um, But you both get a lot of valid history or history that we know Shakespeare got right, and in blatant rewritings of history, you know, people who were children at the time um, of his writing, um, and in fact, he presents as grown-ups, or um, all kinds of things which aren't true. Um, they've still formed our sense. I mean, Richard III Third um, is we, Richard Shakespeare's Richard the Third is our Richard the Third. Um, Shakespeare's Cleopatra is as we see her, um, and maybe that shouldn't be the case, um, but. Um, there are enough people who try to correct that Richard III and say this kind person who you'd have as a babysitter any day of the week. Um, so you've got to be careful um, when reading uh, Shakespeare's work as to what you say it might be true, and might not be. And what you can't question is the fact that he's really influenced our understanding of key
1: periods. Absolutely, which... Kind of taps into another thing that keeps kind of cu- cropping up in this episode, which is sort of history's propaganda. Who would you say are the major culprits? Um, or to some extent, are we all culprits when it comes to this?
2: I think that there may be historians who you would say weren't propagandizing um, their views. Um, but you know, most countries have supplied bits of history to order. Um, the most famous history of Japan, Japan which is an 8th century uh, chronicles, um, has so many fabrications, it's been described as one of the greatest historical frauds ever perpetrated. Um, I've talked about China uh, and Chinese historians just making up what they thought their country's past should be. Um, but I suppose that although, you know, you say, well, British um, British historians. Um, free from being propaganda, propagandists, you take, um, you know, going back to the Middle Ages, people like Geoffrey of Monmouth, who um, took the Merlin and Arthur myths, stirred in total fabrications, Guinevere, Gawain, Lancelot, um, you know, they were making myths so that Britain had an early history full of heroes and villains and magicians and whatever, um, which enriched our understanding of the past, but it was a past which ne- never existed. But when you say uh, kind of major culprits, um, Japan and China, yes, but I think my villain of the day would be Putin. And it's not just that Vladimir Putin um, over everything that's happening um, in Ukraine and in the lead-up um, Um, to the war in Ukraine um, has been falsified by Putin and his government. Um, It's that that is only a continuation of what Putin was doing over the whole of Russian and Soviet history um, as soon as Putin came to power, that he um, ordered certain textbooks to be shut down, um, made a government textbook publisher um, the publishers of the texts which he said were the only ones which were to be used in Russian schools and colleges. Um, apart from anything else, a very lucrative thing, as you know, print runs in, in Russia can run to a million copies a time. But he has gone the, on the attack to say that um, Russian historians should um, preach and write the patriotic version of what Russian history has been. Um, he's closed down um, organizations like Memorial which was telling the truth about the gulags under Stalin and the prison camps um, because that's um, you know not very good um, in his view to the image of Russia rather than realizing that being accurate about even the bad parts or bad aspects of one's country's history lead to a greater understanding of you know what history is and what your country's place in the world is. And in the end, you get found out. It may take a very long time for the truth uh, to be revealed. Um, But you know, the fact that we have such an understanding of the Gulag camps comes from Solzhenitsyn, a novelist, not a historian. And his uh, trilogy on um, the Gulag camps has probably been the most influential work by a novelist on our understanding of history of any novel or work of fiction ever published. Anyways, let's um, go on to novelists, but
1: Putin is my villain number one. Um, well let's stay with novelists. Um, I, I must admit I've never sort of sat down and considered who might have the, the biggest impact. Certainly I find myself sort of banging head against a brick wall that Consists of the the work of um, Victor Hugo and Les Misérables. When it comes to people's understanding of Waterloo, um, love Les Mis though I do. Uh, <laughs> the account we get from that from that book about the battle is one of my big bugbears uh, when it comes to this period. But who would you say are the the big the big voices in terms of influencing our thoughts on the past beyond Shakespeare that we've talked about already? Both.
2: Waterloo, you can take Strandall and you can take War and Peace. Um, Tolstoy refused to have War and Peace called a novel and he didn't want it called a work of history either. He generally was an absolute nuisance to his publishers and to the press um, because he said he's writing a new kind of book. But he studied the source material fantastically. I mean, he'd been Cossack and Covering earlier wars than the Napoleonic Wars. Um, And so he was a fantastic amateur historian. And what you get through a whole range of novelists um, is Tolstoy, in his crazy way, marvelous way, and Solzhenitsyn were trying to tell the truth as they saw it, um, which had been hidden in official accounts. Novelists, more generally, are trying to tell truths which the professional historian um, either can't know or to an extent isn't interested in. Um, And, you know, I say up to the present day, we've got the instance of Hilary Mantel, um, who I think was fed up with the view of Cromwell we get from Robert Bolt's famous play, A Man for All Seasons, um, and Thomas More was, you know, the saintly Thomas More. So she wrote her account. I interviewed her once and said, yeah, I acted in that play. Um, who do you think I played? And she said, without having had any clue beforehand, Cromwell. And of course, she was right. But she said, you know, Cromwell's a far more interesting figure and a more sympathetic figure. But um, she says, you know, what we've got is just we're sieving through Um, the details we've got about the past. And the novelist can, by imaginative recreation, give you a sense of what the archives don't tell us. Um, The emotions of the people we may get from letters, diaries, all kinds of other things, but it's the imaginative gift of the novelist that supplies what a lot of official histories can't, can't give us.
1: There's certainly some some significant truth in that. I mean, in a lot of respects, historians are encouraged to divorce the emotion from their work, certainly today. Um, That is what you're encouraged to do as part of I mean, it goes back to that conversation that you were having with Eric Hobsbawm. Um, One of the ways that you can try and get closer to um, not being influenced by your own experiences, but nonetheless you will be, is to try and remove the emotion from your subject of study. But nonetheless, your perspectives and what interests you are likely going to be influenced by your personality and your lived experience. Um, can I ask about women? What role do women play in, in your book and in, within this story?
2: I'm going to go back to the last issue just on one point, and that there's a wonderful moment in one of Tom Stoppard's plays uh, on the life of journalists, and say two journalists are covering a war in distant parts. And one of the journalists says, yeah, but you know, I'm really trying to be objective. I think I can be objective in my coverage. And his um, co-journalist said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you may be, but are you being objective for or objective against? Even when you think you're being objective, things get in the way. Now, when it comes to women, um, you know, there were no female voices from the ancient world. You think of the Odyssey and Telemachus telling his mother, speech will be the business of men. Um, And that's gone on through the the ages. Aristotle saw women as defective men. Clever women were a threat to men. Um, A late 15th century work commissioned by the papacy said, woman is an imperfect animal. She always deceives. She is an inescapable punishment a necessary evil, a desirable calamity, a delectable detriment and evil of nature. Well, I'm sure you don't agree with that. We don't now. But in terms of women getting to write, although I do quote women historians throughout the book, I've devoted one chapter just to them because I wanted to underline that although there are one or two exceptions, you've got a second century AD Chinese woman historian who Um, took on the writing of history from her father and brother and became a a very fine historian in her own right. But they're the the exceptions that prove the rule. And it's only when you get into the 19th century and early 20th century, particularly when you get normally women from privileged backgrounds who'd been given a good education, allowed that, do you at last get women in any numbers um, writing important works of history. And it's not only that they weren't allowed to. Um, It's very difficult to write the history of women because their accounts weren't kept, that their diaries, their letters, um, or that kind of original material about them wasn't thought to be important. Um, So if you're wanting to write about a woman in the American Civil War, um, you'd have to look up in archives about their husband or their lovers or whatever, to find anything about them. So women have been twice dispossessed, not regarded as people who were capable or should be writing about the past, but their place in the past was diminished and scorned. So um, that's all part of the story of individual people and how they had to fight to
1: be recognized. It absolutely is. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but there are a couple of things I just want to um, touch on before we go, because this book brings us right up to the modern day. um, And there are a couple of themes that are quite relevant to your book. And the first is the era of fake news. How and to what extent does that threaten history? Or do you think that this is a bump that can be ridden out with the passage of time or is it just part of part and parcel of what actually has happened for the previous two millennia.
2: Well, you say that in those innocent, you know, um, pure tones, but there at the beginning of all your installments, um, either you or one of your colleagues says, tell everyone we're incredible. Um, I want to tell everyone that you're credible, that you're putting across true history. Um, One of the problems is that, fake news is very difficult to counter. Um, and it's only by coming together to fight against fakery that we've got a chance of limiting, you know, in the in the days of the internet and the power of um, all the various ways in which the internet can get false stories across, um, that we've got a chance. And the power of the internet and fake news joins with the fact that um, as if I'm jumping on a soapbox here and preaching, but I want to that history is under attack. Good accounts of the past um, are under attack, and they're under attack also from dictators um so that power power brokers are the enemies of good history. and you've got not just Putin, but last November um in America, it was front page news that President Xi of China has said he wants to rewrite the history of China to make it um, more glorious and to whitewash um, moments or periods in Chinese history, which weren't to his liking. Um, You've got Trump doing the same thing. Um, And to my mind, um, the whole um, way in which history should be taught in American schools, you've got a division right down the center of America over what is the right way, what kind of things should be taught and which shouldn't. And so there's a real fight against dictators world over. I've just named, I'm not sure you call Trump a dictator, but I would, um, Trump, Z, Putin, and others, determined that the way children and the population in general should be led into an understanding of the past is the government version. So it's fake news, obviously overlapping with government propagandist news, which are the enemies of people who are really interested to to get the past right as far as one ever can.
1: Yeah, the idea of governments deciding that what does and doesn't matter in a nation's historical narrative is always going to be deeply, deeply problematic. Um, I want to stay with controversial modern figures if we can just to finish off and I'm thinking particularly here of David Starkey um, who caused a huge amount of controversy for reasons that listeners will be familiar with. Um, we took it from your book that you kind of think that this is unfinished history as far as particularly Starkey's uh, concerned at that at this point. Is that fair?
2: Um, if you mean That Starkey might rehabilitate himself. I think that the damage over um, one particular sentence, really, that he wrote, um, will never be completely done away with. But um, he, I mean, he always loved to be unpopular. The most unpopular man in Britain at one point was um, a sobriquet of his, and he relished it. Um, But, you know, it's lost nearly all, if not all, his professional um, positions, um, a whole lot lot of uh, other um, positions which he relished. Um, So it's been an awful downfall, which you could argue, um, I wouldn't say that he didn't deserve to be heavily admonished, Um, but it's a terrible story. But it's not unique. I mean, um, in the 50s and 60s, the leading British historians where, take three of them, you've got A.J.P. Taylor, who wrote The Origins of the Second World War in 1961, and just to be the rogue historian, to stir things up, he said, well, what if Hitler had never intended to go to war? What if Britain's appeasers had really played a rather good hand um, when they went to Munich and so on? Um, Anyway, a whole range of things which really got the, the historical establishment coming down on him like a ton of bricks, and um, ruined his chances of further advancement in, in the academic world of history. Um, and one of his greatest, greatest critics was Hugh Trevor Roper, his great rival, who had enjoyed a star um, reputation you know, ever since his first book on Archbishop Lord. And he said, it's not surprising that um, historians of Lord so far have um, not written about Lord being able to see very far as they approach their subject down on their needs. Um, um, but his reputation never recovered from when he was asked in 1983, paid I think £10,000, which was even more in 1983 than it, you know, it sounds, um, by uh, Rupert Murdoch to authenticate the so-called Hitler Diaries, which had been unearthed so Uh, people were told, in a hayloft in Germany. And for reasons best known to himself, himself said they were genuine. And then he changed his mind at the last moment. And Murdoch um, told that he didn't authenticate them any longer. said, um, publish them with an epithet I wouldn't use on your programme. Well, that ruined Trevor Roper's reputation. All the good work, the good history, everything he'd ever done went for naught. And he was actually a director of Times Newspapers. And you thought when he died, he might have got a sympathetic obituary. The obituary heading led um, authenticator of um, Hitler Diaries hoax dies. So um, you can go on to, I said, that the, I'd named three. Another one was Eric Hobsbawm, who wrote, you know, wonderful histories, the age of extremes, the age of capital, the age of empire, but he never gave up. Um, being a member of the Communist Party. And even after um, the invasion of Hungary in 56, what happened in Czechoslovakia again, invading in 1968, when so many um, communists throughout the world said this is appalling, um, and either gave up their belief in communism or felt that they would very intensely criticize what the Soviet Union was doing. Um, Hobsbawm, was very muted in his criticism and wouldn't give up party affiliation. And that again ruined his reputation. So um, one of the stories, I suppose, a thread running through the whole of my book is how people who wrote marvelous history um, allowed, well, I think in the case of Starkey and AGP Taylor and Trevor Roper, they fell in love with their own publicity or their love of publicity. With Hobsbawm, it was more complicated in that he'd grown up in Germany and saw his country falling apart. And he saw um, the communists and the fascists um, trying to come up with an ism, um, a belief structure that would give people hope. And as a teenager, he fell in with the communists, um, delivered leaflets for them, hid and printing stuff underneath his bed, uh, for which he might have been put to death um, by marauding brown shirts, um, communism gave him a home. Uh, it was his uh, rosebud, thinking back to the, the Citizen um film. Um, he was emotionally so connected to what solace he'd got as a teenage boy that he was never going to be that disloyal, even though it cost him at least one, one part of his reputation. So, uh, to that extent, Starkey is a member of a particular small but sad tribe, people who lost, what is it uh, in Shakespeare, Iago, reputation my reputation, just by one particular act or
1: belief. I'm glad you, you talked us through the Hobsbawm things so we're going to ask whether or not he kind of ever regretted that in later life with you having interviewed him but I, I gather not because for for him you know he, he did it for the right kinds of reasons Richard this has been so interesting thank you so much for giving up your time well, thank you. um, so remind people the book where can they get it what's it called um, all of the the usual things and also where can people find out about your work well, if they ring,
2: ring, if they get onto my page on the internet, Richard Cohen, author, um, they'll find out about my writings and also there's a whole series of me and my anecdotish stories about uh, historians, um, how Salman Rushdie um, once dated Miss the the winner of Miss Universe, um, all kinds of things which they may they may find enjoyable. Um, my book, Making History, is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson, or if you're listening in the States, um, same version, same book, but with a different cover, by Simon & Schuster. Um, available in all good book bookshops, not just Amazon. Um, and you can also find on Amazon um, if you want to read the reviews it's had, um, which so far, fingers crossed, have been very nice, um, which didn't cost me too much in paying off people. Um, and so apart from the woman, the gorgeously beautiful woman, if one's allowed to say such a thing, who's waiting for you downstairs, um, everybody else should, I hope, rush out and read them because my daughter who, came, who lives in Manchester, where she's a doctor, came over to where I live in New York in January and picked up a, a page proof of Making history. And she said, I found her reading it at breakfast. And she said, I don't normally like reading books like this, but I'm really enjoying this. And to get one of your children saying something like that was, it justified all the 10 years I, I spent in putting this book together.
1: I mean, there's an accolade and a review if ever people needed one. Um, but frankly, having listened to you for the, the last hour, I don't think they will have, have needed that commendation because your, your passion and your knowledge speak for themselves. Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been a joy. Thank you.